For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. This is System Trader Show, episode number 22. Welcome to System Trader Podcast. Listen to interviews with top traders and find out how the most successful traders beat the markets and what are the secrets of their success. This is System Trader Podcast with your host, Jack Lempart. There are arguments in favor of traditional passive index funds. They offer low fees, liquidity, and broad diversification. They match market performance have negligible trading costs and tracking error, and they beat most active managers most of the time. On the other side, there are also factor strategies gaining popularity for a reason. They are transparent, offer exposure to widely agreed upon sources of expected return, have low management costs, and with proper design, reasonable transaction costs. In this episode, I'm honored to speak to Vitali Kalesnik, a recognized expert in factor investing. He's a partner and director of research at Research Affiliates. Vitali explains the details related to factor investing. You will learn, among other things, what it is, what the associated risks are, and how to properly use them in practice. And I have a message for you. I encourage you to download the demo version of my software. Thanks to it, you can approach investing in a systematic way. There are several dozen investment ready-made portfolios, passive and active ones. You can check them for the last 50 or even 100 years and observe how they performed in detail. It is a tool for everyone who wants to invest consciously and responsibly. I encourage you to download the demo version at systemtrader.show/st. And now, enjoy the show. Hello, Vitaly. Thank you very much for accepting my invitation to my show. And I know that you're very well known in the industry, but for the sake of pure formality, if you could um, introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do on your daily basis. Well, thank you for the invitation. So it's a great pleasure uh, to talk about fact investing. And I'm the head of research for Europe uh, at a company called Research Affiliates. Uh, I'm located in London, um, and perhaps as an introduction, it's probably good to introduce both the company and myself. Um, Research Affiliates uh, is, uh, is an asset manager uh, that specializes in research. So we're a research-heavy institution. Then we uh, partner with other organizations to, bring, uh, the, to deliver the strategies to the uh, and investors. Um, and essentially, that specializations uh, and that partnering business model uh, allows us to focus uh, best at what we are best at, which is uh, research, creating strategies, uh, and communicating uh, to investors how they should be using, uh, what are the pitfalls of investing, etc. Uh, and again, uh, what uh, our company is best known for uh, is asset allocation and uh, quantitative indexation, uh, which is also known as uh, smart beta, uh, or fact investing. So the different, many, many different names, and but it kind of means uh, more or less the same thing. 
Um, and then my role uh, is a head of research for Europe. Um, and um, for a long time, I, I was located, our headquarters are actually in California, Newport Beach, California. Uh, it's a little bit sunnier than here in London. <laughs> and for, for the most time, uh, I was actually located in Newport. Um, so I was with the company since 2006, uh, but four years down the road, I moved to London. Most of my career at research affiliates, I was head of research for equities. Um, and uh, later, as I moved to, to London, um, kind of the goal was uh, to be closer to our European clients. Uh, also, the uh, fact in, and smart bidding conversation here tends to be half a step ahead, probably, uh, over the rest of the world. And that's why we, uh, as an organization, wanted to have a, a heavier research presence to kind of shorten the uh, communication time and uh, to learn better as an organization uh, what's going on. All right. Um, so today I would like to use your um, great knowledge uh, of uh, factor investing and I would like to bring this issue closer to, to investors who may be at the beginning of their, um, let's say, investment path. So let's start with some very basic stuff. Uh, what is the difference between passive and active investing? Is there any border we can put there? So to say that up to that moment, we, we are passive and beyond that, it's already active approach. So uh, passive investing uh, is uh, usually delivered in, 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 in an index form. Uh, it tends to be transparent uh, and uh, low fee. By design, uh, passive investing is a mechanistic strategy. So basically, uh, it's usually uh, based on an index. Uh, and the index uh, in its rules has uh, all the formulas to replicate it. Um, so uh, there is no discretion uh, for, for anyone to mess with the portfolio. Um, and uh, now that's that's my definition of passive. Some may disagree, uh, and probably some would say kind of where uh, the uh, origins of passing inv passive investing came from, just investing in the whole market. And uh, the origins uh, of that way of thinking was that uh, markets are efficient, and uh, and that's why by investing into uh, whole market and paying low fees and having low turnover, uh, you'll be uh, still ahead of uh, most of the active managers. So that's passive. Active managers, uh, the pro promise of active managers is that uh, active managers have skill, they, uh, they get money from the investors, uh, and they use their discretion uh, to, to invest. And that process could be uh, either quant based or fully discretionary, where uh, investors could be using their whims, uh, uh, but not necessarily whims, their fundamental research uh, and uh, a lot of other potentially technical signals to invest. Um, and uh, usually, uh, active managers, because it has skill, uh, it, it, the promise of it is that they have skill. Uh, they charge high fees, they're not transparent, and they tend to be higher turnover strategies. Okay. You mentioned about the traditional approach, that's, let's say traditional passive index funds. And as you mentioned, they offer low fees, they are uh, liquid, they, have, um, they give us the broad market participation, and um, they match the performance of the, uh, let's say, the, 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 the market. And um, 
and that on top of that, they beat most of active managers as well, most of the time at least. So why would investors want something more on top of such a great thing, at least from the theoretical point of view? Because if passive, purely passive approach, uh, old, let's say, um, index funds are so great, why would someone look for, um, I don't know, for example, factory investing? The origins uh, of uh, the traditional cap-weighted broad market uh, investing uh, are coming from the original uh, uh, work in in finance, uh, kind of, uh, they they reflect finance thinking of early 60s, uh, where essentially uh, uh, there was, um, in the 1950s and 60s, there was the uh, great revolution in, in finance thinking where before it was, there was no such a science as finance. Uh, and then uh, Harry Markowitz invented the portfolio theory and, and said that, well, you should uh, diversify away the idiosyncratic risks. And by for- forming portfolios, uh, you can capture uh, the most uh, underlying risks. And that's what you should be getting compensated for. Uh, and then uh, later, Bill Sharp and others have extended it to CAPM model. Uh, arguing uh, that essentially investors should only get compensated for bearing market risk. Um, And uh, if you have representative investing, um, free borrowing uh, and free risk taking and kind of no frictions, uh, then market portfolio should be the optimal portfolio for investors to hold. And so based on that knowledge uh, or best based on that theoretization, uh, the uh, traditional cap-weighted passive investing uh, came about. Um, and uh, why factor investing? Well, mm, later on, uh, as uh, the knowledge in finance in, in the late 70s uh, and 80s uh, expanded, uh, that's where we learned uh, that uh, markets are not necessarily all that efficient. Uh, and um, there are uh, and uh, there are not only one source of risk uh, that get compensated with a premium, there, but there are potentially multiple sources of risks. So um, and that's where uh, empirical finance documented uh, fact inv- factors. Uh, what are factors? Well, uh, to give you an example, value is one factor where uh, it would uh, buy stocks uh, uh, which are cheaper priced where you compare where cheapness is defined as uh, price to scale by f- some fundamental. Um, so price to book, for example, or price to earnings. Um, that's value investing. Uh, you can, uh, there is low beta investing where you're going for uh, low risk portfolios um, and uh, or low risk stocks. And so for value, for example, uh, why would somebody want to do value investing? Well, uh, empirically, uh, Many studies have shown that companies with low price to book or price to sales or price to cash flow or price to earnings or many other fundamentals ratios tend to outperform stocks uh, with high price to book, growth stocks or expensive stocks. Uh, Similarly, for low beta investing, the companies with low risk, so let's say low beta uh, and where beta, again, I understand that could be probably quite a bit of uh, difference in um, kind of uh, audience uh, knowledge of the jargon. So beta is the measure of how much stocks com- stock moves with the market. And so if you select stocks which move little with the market uh, and select many of these stocks, 
uh, that this portfolio become, tend to be less risky than the market. But interestingly, uh, that least, less risky portfolio doesn't have low return. So uh, it performs on par, uh, if not sometimes outperforming the market. So uh, on the risk-adjusted basis, that's a very interesting investment then. Uh, and so that's where fact investing was discovered. Uh, and then uh, later, uh, it took probably uh, for the business and practice of finance about 20 to 30 years to catch up. Um, and today, a smart beta strategies are offering fact investing. They're offering kind of these additional sources of potential premia. And, uh, and they're packaged just like traditional passive into simple, transparent, low-fee vehicles. Okay, but people have been investing for centuries, um, and although people were not aware of uh, the existence of factors, so my question is, is this a new view on investing, or it's just a, let's say, formal way how to describe that from the scientist point of view? It's more the latter. Uh, so value investing, um, the uh, Value investing uh, premise is quite simple. Uh, you pay as little of a price for an asset, and uh, if you pay for the same asset at a lower price, you'll earn higher return. It's no-brainer. Uh, investors have been doing it for centuries, um, and uh, in the uh, perhaps in the philosophical and um, formal way. Uh, that was uh, formalized probably best in, in the 1930s uh, by Graham and Dodd. Uh, they've written uh, a very famous book, uh, so they're considered generally to be uh, fathers of fact uh, of uh, value investing. Um, and, uh, and so uh, value investing obviously has been practiced by fundamental managers ever since in a very systematic manner. Uh, then in the 70s and 80s, uh, there were uh, quant active managers who were doing exactly the same things as smart beta strategy or similar things, but charging active management fees. Uh, and uh, were the revolution for uh, smart beta uh, strategies, what is new uh, is not necessarily the finance side. It's more, uh, it's more on the vehicle delivery, so simplicity, transparency, and low fees. And you may want to ask, does it matter? Uh, the short answer is yes, it does. Uh, because mm, if you look at, uh, at the overall uh, managers, uh, active managers and passive managers alike, uh, the three biggest uh, differentiators, or probably four biggest differentiators uh, of the uh, return for investors, what investor gets in in the end is uh, how much fees they're paying. If they pay less fee, uh, they earn higher return. Um, how much transaction costs uh, invest uh, the manager experiences? Uh, it, the lower the transaction costs, the higher the return for the investors. And, and then factor investing. Uh, so uh, investors who... Uh, who are exposed to certain factors, uh, be it passive or active, uh, they tend to get higher return if that factor gets compensated with a premium. Uh, and then, so that's uh, that's a very classical 1997 uh, Mark Carhart's uh, work. Uh, basically, these are three important differentiators. Uh, and then there is later work uh, where um, in uh, where there are a number of studies that look at investor 
buy and hold return into mutual funds uh, versus what investors actually get, uh, and uh, which is kind of the dollar-weighted return. Uh, and the difference, what is the difference? The difference is that investors can rotate between funds uh, and can have um, uh, and can vary the leverage of their portfolios over time. Uh, and uh, investors basically tend to invest after a period of high performance. They tend to select managers which have outperformed and divest from managers that underperform. Uh, and you'd think that that brings a premium because uh, this is a, a kind of, uh, that, that's the whole premise of looking at active managers. If active manager underperforms, that active manager must not have any skill. And that's why you should switch from this manager to outperforming. Well, the truth is that this rotation actually uh, detracts about uh, 200 basis points per annum from investor uh, returns uh, because invest as a result of this, uh, by high sell low dynamic, investors uh, sell uh, managers who hold cheap assets. As they become cheaper, as they become more attractive, they sell more, and vice versa. They buy as assets become more and more expensive. And so, as a result, not surprisingly, they underperform by about 100 basis points. Um, and so, uh, I mentioned the simplicity and transparency as one of the uh, ones of the attributes of smart beta investing, uh, and in my view, they're hugely underappreciated, uh, but they're extremely important because they in allow investors to, to avoid um, bad governance mistakes and to avoid uh, this bad rotation, which in the end hand, uh, handicaps uh, investor performance uh, by a great margin. Okay, thank you for that. In a minute, we'll go deeper into the uh, details of factor investing. But just to be sure that everyone who's listening or watching us is um, can understand us, let's explain some jargon. And there are things like uh, factor, factor portfolio, smart beta, smart beta strategy. Is there any difference between these terms? How we should uh, understand them, especially from the practical point of view, fr uh, from the from the point of view of uh, of uh, of an investor. So uh, I think the best uh, is to uh, go under the label and look uh, under the hood. Just like if you're buying the car, uh, you don't just look at the label. You want to understand uh, what is driving it. Um, and so, uh, and so, basically, uh, as I mentioned, the key differentiators are fees, um, transaction costs, uh, transparency, and, and what factors uh, they give you exposure for. Um, so interestingly, we've looked uh, at, uh, so uh, Morningstar categorizes funds um, and uh, they have several categories which are, which are like passive, uh, which is the traditional passive strategies, cap, usually cap-weighted. Uh, then there is a strategic, what they call strategic beta, that's their term for smart beta uh, strategies, um, and there is active managers. Uh, and so interestingly, when, when we looked at, at, uh, at these mutual funds uh, and fees that these mutual funds charge, uh, the passive uh, investors by that classification tend to be predominantly uh, under 50 basis points. They say in the United States and Europe, uh, fees distribution can be a little bit different, but that's generally very cheap, right? And where majority, uh, more than half is kind of less than 25 basis points. Uh, the active managers uh, tend to have fees uh, over 100 basis points. Uh, they promise a skill and they want to get compensated for that skill. 
uh, and uh, and that makes sense. Uh, now, when we're looking at, at this uh, this strategic beta uh, category, uh, we have this interesting shape where about half uh, or seventy five percent are uh, below fifty basis points. So, th in terms of fees, that category is just as cheap as traditional passive. But there is a second hump uh, over 100 basis points. Um, and uh, basically what these are, uh, are uh, some active managers decorating themselves as smart beta, calling themselves uh, smart beta and help trying to ride on the popularity of the category uh, while they're not. So investors, so how to select and how to define, well, look under the hook and uh, the features that you should be expecting uh, are low fees, uh, simplicity, transparency, uh, the index should be designed well. Um, and so uh, what it should be reflected in is it should have a low turnover and high weighted average market cap to translate into low transaction costs. Uh, and then should give you exposure to robust factors uh, where uh, you would see that academics, uh, for example, would agree that this uh, we've considered enough evidence and we think that there is enough evidence for this factor um, to likely work. That, uh, by li and by likely work is by likely uh, to at least have outperformed in the past. And when we are talking about factor investing, we mainly think about equities. Can we also use factor investing, um, apply some factor investing to, let's say, fixed income, for example, for example, to to see how bonds are responding to momentum factor, let's say. Can we do that? Is it is it a good way uh, to explore? Yes. Uh, the short answer is yes. Um, factor investing can um, is not um, is not just for equities. Uh, it we could think of it uh, more broadly uh, within other asset classes like bonds that you mentioned, commodities, uh, other uh, other instruments. Um, and even between asset classes. Um, so uh, as uh, factors uh, also drive, uh, uh, factors can, different factors uh, defined specifically for uh, other um, kind of uh, areas can drive performance uh, between asset classes. Now, uh, we're probably the distinction is, is that equity investing is to a degree uh, more straightforward uh, and um, uh, and markets are much more liquid. Uh, whereas on the bond market, for example, uh, there is uh, quite a bit of uh, heterogeneity in terms of the uh, in terms of types of bonds. Um, some tr uh, trading uh, the kind of same company can have multiple uh, bond issues. Uh, they can have different durations, etc. And so, uh, all of that uh, is is important for bond investing, uh, and uh, because of that kind of bigger heterogeneity in terms of the instruments, uh, it lends itself harder uh, for uh, rules based simple uh, investing. Now, having said that, uh, is it possible? Yeah, of course, and th there are some investors who do that. So. What investment vehicle is, I don't know if it's a good word, the best to use for uh, for the average investor to have exposure to factors? Is it the ETF, index fund, or maybe also some investors, more sophisticated investors can do it on their own? How do you see that? 
I think the uh, ETFs uh, uh, would be uh, probably the most uh, easily, or mutual funds uh, more generally, uh, would be uh, the types of vehicles the, uh, the most accessible to investors. Um, and uh, they tend to have uh, transparency. Now, depending on where geographically you sit, in the United States, for example, EDFs offer additional layer of benefit in terms of uh, tax advantages, uh, or whereas uh, mutual funds uh, have, um, un unless they're kind of implemented in, in a uh, tax exempt accounts, uh, they can have uh, another set of uh, tax implications where ETFs are uh, structured a little bit more tax efficiently. Uh, now, in Europe, uh, that's probably less of a concern uh, because of the difference uh, in, well, uh, depending again on jurisdiction, they can be probably different, but um, that, that distinction is less important. Uh, and uh, now, also, EDFs tend to be uh, di diversified um, and um, and fees tend to be low. Um, because of that, uh, unless you're super experienced and have a, a lot of um, free time and knowledge, uh, I'd say uh, that going with existing established vehicle uh, is a preferred way. But can you do it uh, on your own? Yeah, of course you can do it. Uh, just be careful uh, about transaction costs, uh, about um, the uh, defining uh, the discipline of, of following your strategy. Uh, by the way, uh, like all of this uh, tend to sound a little bit like magic. Well, you just buy these stocks and, and they outperform. Doesn't sound to it, it doesn't doesn't it sound too good to be true? Uh, well, the truth is, uh, you are uh, very often getting compensated for bearing some risks. Uh, and uh, this could be either the true risk, this could be sometimes more risky portfolios, uh, or it could be the, uh, the risk of not following the crowd and, and investing into companies or countries or sectors uh, that are most hated by the market, for example. Um, and uh, following that discipline takes uh, a lot of uh, uh, guts. So, for example, with value investing, think about uh, last year. Well, uh, when COVID hit, uh, which countries became value? Well, airlines, for example, energy, financials. You should have got. You should have had guts investing in airlines, increasing your uh, allocation uh, to airlines uh, as their pricing prices were falling down. Well, uh, would it have paid off? Yeah, it it did actually. To this uh, kind of, if you were to buy airlines uh, at about this time last year and waited for for a year, uh, you would have earned uh, a pretty decent rate of return. But uh, is that scary and is that comfortable? Um, I mean, is that comfortable? That's not comfortable at all. So by uh, you get compensated for bearing many of these uh, uh, real and perceived risks. Um, and so coming back to uh, your own implementation, uh, when ETF does it, uh, you don't see what's going on under the hood. Uh, and it may be a little bit more comfortable for you to just invest and forget. Uh, when you do it on your own uh, and uh, your model will be telling you to buy airlines, you, you may start uh, double thinking the model 
uh, and uh, doubting uh, if it's if it's the right time, uh, and that's just the wrong uh, the wrong uh, thing to do at that time. Um, so uh, basically, try to think and set up uh, that discipline uh, for the future to be successful with that type of investing. Right. The problem I see with factors is that we have a lot of them. I mean, actually, there are becoming so numerous and exotic that um, John Cochrane referred to the collection as a zoo. So what set of characteristics, let's say, would constitute evidence that an actual factor uh, is really a factor? I mean, it's not the data mining effect. It's not data snooped. So how can we be sure that this is a really uh, something in it, not just uh, data manipulation? Because as, as they say, um, if you will, um, you know, torture the data, it will confess to anything. So <laughs> I'm afraid that some in some cases we, we can be also the victims that we will just uh, really uh, be looking into some for something and we will find it, but it's not the real thing. That's an absolutely real risk, in fact, investing. And and uh, so the the way to our uh, I can describe our process uh, at Research Affiliates. Um, so uh, we want uh, f for us to, to accept certain factors as likely to work in the future. Uh, first thing that we want to understand is um, the economic rationale for why it should be delivering a premium. So, for example, with value investing, uh, I, uh, uh, you, uh, the the fact, uh, the value factor uh, tends to buy stocks that are uncomfortable um, and scary for uh, many people, and tend to sell stocks uh, that are loved by uh, people. And uh, when they are loved, they tend to trade at higher prices. And as a result, uh, in the long run, that pays a premium. Um, and uh, so that's uh, understanding the theory is the first step. Uh, second, uh, we want empirical evidence uh, and we want it uh, strong and statistically significant. Um, and, uh, and so we don't want just one backtest because, uh, as you mentioned, if you torture the data enough, it will confess. And so uh, usually, uh, though, uh, the, it's quite easy to overcome some of these data mining biases um, because we know, for example, that um, a, lot of these a lot of these factors are, are coming from academic publications. Uh, and academics get compensated with tenure and pay for publishing articles, uh, so they want to put their best foot forward. Now... As a result, some potential data mining is uh, is very likely to appear in much of that work. Uh, but there are ways to counteract it. So, for example, uh, if uh, value in the literature is defined as price to book, um, but we know uh, the reason why it should work is by uh, comparing the price to the company fundamentals, well, we can choose some other fundamentals other than the book value of equity um, to compare the price with. Uh, and so if it works, if the strategy gives you about the same rate of return, whether you define it by price to cash flows, price to sales, price to dividends, pr price to book, um, varying this definition doesn't result in portfolio difference, then it's more likely that it's a robust factor. Uh, furthermore, uh, we can uh, a lot of the uh, academic work is focused in, in the United States. Um, and uh, in the United States, uh, we have uh, the cleanest and longest 
uh, data sets, uh, the most easily accessible for uh, academics to torture. Uh, and uh, because of that, uh, we can, uh, they can, uh, they tend to discover it first in the United States. Well, if it was data snooped and discovered just to work in the United States, and if it doesn't work outside of the United States, well, it's more likely to be data snooped in the, in the first place. So by uh, checking if it works in, in different geographies um, is, uh, is the next step. Um, next, uh, we wanted to work uh, outside of just microcaps uh, because uh, many factors, uh, so microcaps, these are the tiniest uh, companies, they tend to be less liquid and more pros to, prone to mispricing and, and more prone to uh, all kind of data issues. So if we uh, find that the factor works only because of the microcaps, uh, well, again, that's uh, the type of factor that is not very likely to give a return advantage for investors uh, going forward. Uh, next is we want to make sure that uh, the uh, return survives the transaction costs because many, uh, many of the factor investing is done without the proper consideration of costs. Um, and that's unfair because uh, when, uh, when investors will be placing uh, trading these factors, they'll be experiencing the transaction cost. And, uh, and so if the factor premium is less than the uh, transaction cost, then it's not a real factor. Uh, and then finally, the, uh, the another important consideration is we always have a, a limited data set uh, covering very limited time period. So even if it looks on paper fantastic that we can have data going, let's say, uh, to the uh, 60s in the United States, that still gives us only 50 years of history. Uh, whereas it, once we trade, uh, there are the latest accounts of factors documented in tier one academic journals alone uh, gives us 400 plus factors. Uh, and uh, once we start adding and looking at potential definitions, there are millions of ways in which you can define factors. Uh, and so basically that 50 year period is uh, at best what we can get is quite short. Uh, and another thing that can happen when we are looking at, uh, at the long uh, at the short enough period is that um, we can be looking at just one uh, macro or market cycle, uh, uh, significantly skew, skewing the picture. And, and so uh, if relative valuations uh, were to drive uh, all of the factor premium, that those relative valuations are not likely to be uh, expanding forever, uh, kind of assets can just grow indefinitely uh, uh, unless we're living in some Ponzi world. Um, and so because of that, uh, we should remove uh, the uh, relative valuation, revaluation type of uh, return from the premium. And so if a factor survives, so basically uh, earns enough alpha adjusted for revaluation, uh, we have sound um, theoretical basis for why it should be working. If it's robust to perturbations and definitions, robust, works in different geographies uh, and uh, ha doesn't have high transaction costs, then that's more likely than not uh, to outperform going forward. And by the way, notice that even here, I'm saying more likely than not, uh, even here, we shouldn't be, uh, we should be pretty humble and investors should realize that uh, even if they selected 
five factors that are likely to work. Even if two of these factors work in reality, they're still uh, where they don't know which two out of five, they're still better off than nothing. During our discussion, you already mentioned a few factors. So um, I'd like to uh, go a bit uh, further and ask you what are, from your experience, the factors with the most robust returns? If you could just uh, select, I don't know, four or five. By the way, I, I read an article by Eugene Fama who said that it's good to be limited to just the basic factors, to not uh, multiple them. Uh, so what is your view on that? What are the best factors from your point of view, from your experience? So the the factors uh, with the most empirical evidence are value, uh, low beta, uh, momentum, quality. Uh, but quality, uh, and we can have we can chat a long uh, for a long time about quality. But quality uh, defined per perhaps by profitability and um, conservative investments. So basically, highly profitable and uh, companies that do not grow their Uh, book of assets uh, aggressively, and that's close to it. Uh, now, some of the uh, factors uh, that are also popular uh, were uh, we um, we we have less uh, conviction for is size, for example, small cap. Uh, where uh, Fama in French now, Fama in French are Fama Fama got his Nobel Prize, and part of it, it has been his work. Uh, on um, institutionalizing factors uh, into the uh, academic uh, cons uh, into the academic uh, discourse, um, and uh, th their Fama and French three and later five factor models are kind of uh, the uh, golden standard in, in much of the academic use. Now, uh, the their factor models uh, include uh, Mark. Now, by the way. Uh, market premium market pays a premium and uh, market is a very strong factor uh, now having said that uh, one factor that they tend to include is size which is small cap um, and we tend to be more skeptical about size because um, size although it's one of the earliest discovered factors uh, but it tends to benefit Uh, a lot on paper from companies uh, that are getting delisted uh, and from uh, and so basically many of the uh, data sets that academic uh, academics rely on uh, they inaccurately reflect uh, these um, delisting returns so after a company gets delisted uh, there is this delisting return that is uh, posted in the database Uh, and there is quite a bit of work saying that the, uh, this delisting return is overstated when investors can actually get. So in practice, investors get less. And, and so once you adjust for that, for example, uh, you don't get uh, much of the small cap premium. So that's that's in short uh, the, the list. So basically market, value, low beta, momentum, Uh, and quality defined by profitability investments. Now, now by the way, uh, let me uh, add a few more caveats. Uh, one issue, for example, uh, with momentum uh, is that momentum is a high turnover and high transaction cost strategy. Uh, so although on paper it, it looks uh, very good, uh, in reality, it, it tends to be uh, hard to harvest uh, with large assets. 
and so because of that, investors should be quite careful uh, about how they approach uh, momentum. So momentum tends to be best working when it's combined with other factors and uh, where other factors, for example, like value, tends to work against some of the momentum signals. So when trades are canceling, momentum actually starts working less as a buy-initiated signal, but more as a, a signal which tells us when to jump into cheap opportunities. And that can help us harvest the premium without necessarily experiencing uh, the high transaction costs. And what is the minimum investment horizon for an investor who wants to use factors? Because as we know, people are very impatient. So they think that once they invest in the good strategy, they would like to see the results uh, immediately. And it's hard to, I think, convince them to wait 10, 20 or more years to see the results. So from your point of view, uh, from your research, what do you think is the minimum time horizon? Most factors uh, tend to outperform most of the time on three to five year horizon. Now, having said that, uh, factors are prone to, uh, all factors are risky and uh, there is no magic. It's not a guaranteed return. If if you're looking for guaranteed return, uh, don't don't put your money on on stock market. Uh, there is nothing but the guaranteed return in the stock market. In fact, investing is not uh, an exception. Um, and uh, fact, uh, factors are prone to uh, sharp drawdowns, prolonged periods of underperformance, and potential uh, a lot of pain. Uh, we've, uh, we've written a, an article where, for example, we, uh, we asked this question. We looked at the factor returns and we asked, the question, what if we were to compare uh, the factor monthly returns to a normal distribution? What is a normal distribution? Well, uh, basically, it's kind of like well-behaved distribution where you don't have very fat tails. So many of the things that we're experiencing in, in our life are normally distributed. Um, and, and so then uh, we ask the question, how far is this deviation from normality for some of the factors? Uh, by looking at the worst uh, realization of the last 55 years. And so uh, if it were, if indeed uh, it, these factors were normally distributed, mm, these worst months uh, should have been about 50 to 100 years. Uh, that's kind of just the property of waiting 55 years, we get the worst one. Well, it should be at about, uh, appearing about one in every 50 years. Uh, now, the... Real frequency, uh, kind of compare it. So, if it was drawn from normal distribution, the magnitude of drawdowns that we've uh, seen, uh, that frequency tends to be often in millions of years. Uh, and for some of the factors, the worst ones uh, were in, on the order of unlikely to have occurred uh, in our universe uh, from the Big Bang. It's kind of 10, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it, it was like 10 to the 15 years. Uh, and and that's, that just tells us how big these deviations are. And, and, and that's just on monthly frequency. Sometimes some of these deviations can be followed by another and another month of, of bad performance. Um, so bottom line is you should be, if you want to benefit from factor investing, you should be patient and uh, you should have long horizon. And it's not 
perhaps uh, it's not it's good to uh, differentiate uh, the gambling portfolio from an investment portfolio uh, if you want to gamble and you want an entertainment and kick from uh, the stock market and following the stocks set some money aside and play with that money say that this is my play money uh, i want to i want to select stocks uh, uh, there i will do whatever i want uh, but then set aside a, a, a your uh, retirement money or your a kids college money or whatever you are saving for money uh, where you'll want uh, that you'll want to touch that portfolio in let's say 10 15 20 years set it aside and just patiently invest and add to that portfolio and put it to some boring low cost uh, vehicle giving you uh, exposure to to uh, to factors so as George Soros says that uh, good investing is boring, and I think that that's a good thing to a good way to look at it, rather than look for some excitement in investing. But you mentioned a very interesting thing in one of your previous answer that it's a good way to combine momentum with value. So, what do you think about timing the uh, the factors? So, for example, rather than buy all of them, let's say that we apply momentum on value. So when value is rebounding, is going up, then we are trying to catch that uptrend with the momentum, for example. Because you, in one, in, in one of your article, you mentioned that people are doing that very wrongly. They are chasing returns in a very poor fashion where exactly the result is the opposite they would expect. How do you see that timing factor issue? So my comment about combining value and momentum was on the stock level. So, uh, but your question uh, totally makes sense. Uh, 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 other, uh, would you combine uh, value and momentum on between factors, and uh, thus trying to um, time factors make sense? Uh, and the short answer is yes. It does. Uh, we've seen evidence uh, that it does help uh, and does improve returns. The uh, we've uh, written an article uh, documenting mm, that uh, factors experience uh, what is called factor momentum, mm, which is uh, once uh, a factor uh, outperformed, it, it tends to continue outperforming going forward. Um, and so that's your factor momentum, and that's not subsumed by the uh, stock level momentum. And also similarly, uh, there is a value effect between factors uh, where uh, factor, so different factors uh, would have uh, natural, some natural level of uh, discount level. So for example, value by definition, value portfolio is cheaper than growth uh, portfolio. That's just by definition because we're using the uh, price to book, for example, to select stocks. Uh, but the discount of, of value to growth stocks uh, can vary significantly over time. Um, so, for example, uh, if we were to select 30% most value companies versus 30% most growth companies by price to book, uh, the average discount is, is about uh, over the last 55 years or so has been uh, one to five. But the discount was hugely time varying. Uh, there were times when the discount was only one to three. So that's when value was uh, relatively expensive uh, compared to growth. And there were periods when value was very cheap. 
Um, so, for example, during the height of the tech bubble, that discount was uh, about uh, 1 to 10 or 1 to 8, well, depending on how you look at it. But 1 to 5 versus 1 to 10, that's a big difference, right? And so not surprising that uh, when investors were uh, purchasing and uh, investing into value strategies during the tech bubble, uh, they experienced a significant outperformance uh, in the years following the tech bubble. Now, today is actually a very interesting uh, period from that perspective because um, we, for a long time, uh, I've thought that uh, those people uh, who, who've lived with their investment profession through the tech bubble, uh, they've uh, they've had such a fantastic time because that's that would be a once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh, we're likely never to see that level of value to growth discounts ever in our lives uh and interestingly right now that discount is even deeper uh, last year it was the widest we've uh, ever seen in the in the history so value companies were significantly discounted compared to growth companies uh, now this year uh, late last year and early this year value started rebounding uh, but that rebound has stopped. And so today, uh, the relative valuation is still halfway between uh, where it was uh, last summer and uh, where it was at the height of the tech bubble. Uh, so from that perspective, value is showing up quite uh, quite attractive. And so uh, does it make sense to combine the value and factor momentum and uh, factor value signals? Yes. Uh, that uh, factor momentum is uh, a high turnover signal. Um, and uh, by combining it with value, it can help better time uh, the entry points uh, and you trade less. Uh, and, and another point is that it's, it's not just trading less, but it can give you a more opportune time uh, to come in because... Um, because uh, buying a falling knife can be quite painful. So uh, looking at momentum uh, last year would have told you that it's probably spring of last year was not the best time to be buying value companies. And, uh, and so momentum would have uh, urged you to slow down uh, your purchases. And that's just the right thing. And so, but then uh, once uh, the we started the, uh, reversion, um, that's where it, it's probably, it, it is a great time to be invested in value. You have already mentioned uh, some risks of, um, let's say, factor investing. And um, I saw in your article uh, titled, How Can Smart Beta Go Horribly Wrong? That you said that we foresee, I'm just uh, citing, uh, we foresee the reasonable probability of a smart beta crash as a consequence of the soaring popularity of factor tilt strategies. So uh, the, the problem I see here is that, first of all, as you also mentioned that, I don't know if in that article or some other one, uh, because I read them a lot, that the common view is that smart beta strategies, factor tilts, and, and factor tilts are the equivalent. So how do you see that problem? Is there any difference uh, between them? And indeed, how you see the problem that indeed we may expect to have some smart beta crash? As, as you as you described uh, let me differentiate maybe uh, the two questions so one is uh, the difference between factor tilts and smart beta and another is the factor popular popularity 
um, expansiveness and potential factor crash. Um, so let me first answer that first question about factor tilts. I tend to kind of interchangeably use the factor investing in smart beta. The uh, construction of the strategies matters a lot. Uh, and so by uh, using cap-weighted strategy and overlaying on top of it a little bit of factor investing uh, or factor tilts uh, can result in a subpar uh, performance because so cap weighting uh, cap weighting uh, by construction uh, is prone to overweighting over price stocks and underweighting under price stocks um, and so if uh, for example value strategy uh, the um, performance comes from selecting cheaper companies if you if you once you've selected uh, you then cap uh, weigh them uh, within that portfolio, you will put much less weight on the uh, most attractive weights, uh, most attractive stocks because they can be can have low capitalization, uh, and so uh, that kind of uh, construction, those construction details can uh, destroy the benefit uh, of the factor investing. So the exact details of factor implementation matter, um, and so following. Uh, Alternative weighting schemes, for example, can allow you to better harvest uh, some of the premium. Uh, so that's that's one. Second, in terms of implementation, uh, transaction costs matters, uh, and uh, and so um, now cap weighted strategy with factor tilt is unlikely to give you uh, high transaction costs. But then uh, some uh, some other weighting schemes, for example, equal weighting. Um, or selecting very skinny, very thin uh, list of portfolio of stocks in your portfolio can give you high turnover and low weighted average market cap, and so result can result in high transaction costs, uh, which will eat away all, all the benefits uh, of the uh, smart beta investing. So, bottom line is, even though that on paper factor investing, factor tilts, uh, and smart beta are the same. Uh, looking under the hood and understand the uh, details of the design can give you kind of night and day difference. And and looking for the best constructed strategy is quite important. So that's uh, that's on the that uh, question of differentiation factor tilts versus smart beta. In terms of the uh, second question, second issue, uh, the uh, popularity and potential crowdedness uh, and the premium disappear disappearing over time so when we wrote uh, the article in 2016 the how can smart beta go horribly wrong fact investing was screaming through every channel uh, basically if you were to show up at any conference uh, there would be five six talks about smart beta and fact investing and how it's uh, fantastic and uh, best thing ever created We've seen marketing material where um, there were, I, I, I don't even uh, understand how some of the compliance officers allowed uh, some of that marketing material being created where uh, like there were almost like three year guaranteed 100 out of 100 re results. Uh, so, but that, that was the mood uh, and uh, and that was that felt to us very uh, d 
disingenuous and very dangerous. Um, so uh, first, invest uh, many investors who were coming into these strategies didn't realize the risks that they were facing. Um, and second, uh, the popularity uh, of some of the factors uh, picked up by investors was coming from the fact that these factors were uh, had recent outperformance uh, and they were expensive. So uh, recent great performance meant investors looked at the back test uh, and they saw this great strategy. It will continue outperforming uh, to only discover that since the moment of uh, one, that strategy went live, that outperformance disappeared. And more often than not, actually mean reverted because these strategies could have been uh, more expensive uh, than before. And so buying expensive strategies, not understanding the risks, and uh, and being promised uh, being promised something that is un- unrealistic uh, is a recipe for disaster. And that's where we said, that's how can smart beta go horribly wrong. Uh, do we mean by that that smart beta doesn't make sense? No, of course not. Uh, we think that fact investing makes sense. We think that... Um, uh, simplicity, transparency, and low fees are all to the benefits of investors. But uh, investors should be uh, totally realistic about what they're buying and uh, the selection process for the strategies um, and totally understanding the types of risks uh, that they're facing. So actually, uh, funny enough, uh, we're chatting uh, with uh, some of the uh, guys from CFA who, uh, who were... Uh, running conferences uh, and uh, um, what we see, uh, what we heard, and that was just like a week ago, and what we heard uh, was that uh, the fact investing uh, conversation has uh, completely, like very much close to disappeared. Uh, Why? Because uh, factors uh, show that they can be scary during COVID times. Um, and uh, factors can have uh, these big drawdowns. Uh, and, and so uh, on the back of that, it, it's not very good for the rosy picture, the, the outperformance, 100, 100, uh, th- three out of three, 100 times, 100% uh, is, n- n- do- doesn't look like anything like reality. And that's why uh, actually, but by consequences, we think that right now is probably the right time to be in fact investing because Many factors are cheap on the on the relative valuation basis. They're unpopular. They're uh, they're shied away by uh, most investors, and and that that might be the best time uh, y- you could think of to enter. You already mentioned about the fact that factor investing may be very scary, and I think that value investing showed us in the recent years that it can be really very scary. So let's talk a bit about value investing more in details. You mentioned at the very beginning of our discussion that Graham and Dot uh, formulated the principles of, of that style, let's say in the 30s of the previous century, just finding high quality stocks and buy them at a uh, cheaply at low price so my first question is just to understand that better how do stocks become cheap or expensive i mean what causes that misprices uh which creates the value premium you made uh, just the right uh point about how we define value and uh Graham, the way Graham and dot defined value was um let's pick uh, the intri- compute the intrinsic value of the company by take a look at its assets 
uh, which would be kind of proxy for liquidation value. And, and then let's look at the cash flows and that the company is likely to generate and potentially these cash flows could be uh, either growing or shrinking or staying stable. Uh, and uh, by looking at that intrinsic value and discounting this future cash flows, we get uh, we get a, a intrinsic valuation of the company. Uh, and then let's compare the market value, uh, how much that company is traded at today uh, versus that intrinsic value. If the market value is less than that intrinsic value, uh, then it's it's a great buy. That's that's a value investing. Now uh, it doesn't mean uh, that uh, the it, it, uh, so sometimes uh, value and growth investing is kind of put against uh, each other. Uh, but uh, but that's that's doesn't there is no not that inherent uh, conflict. Uh, you can have a fast growing company uh, with great fundamentals and showing fast growth and where uh, it it can be that that exponential growth um, can tr- re- result in an extremely high uh, intrinsic valuation of a company uh, and uh, and that company can look very attractive uh, relative to market price uh, even if the price to book or price to current cash flows can be uh, can be low um, now that's that's kind of your classic definition of value. Now, because that intrinsic value language or definition is vague by design, uh, they they were formulating the principles. They didn't tell us uh, exactly how to compute that intrinsic value because you can't compute it. You can't define one single formula for the ever-changing uh, world. Um, and uh, that's why uh, when academics starting taking these different investment styles to uh, academic studies, uh, they wanted something easy and easy to compute and easy to define. Uh, and that's why they went with uh, definitions of price to cash flows. Mm, uh, actually, the very first definition of value was price to earnings. Uh, and Fama and French uh, chose price to book, uh, again, because book value was uh, easy uh, to capture in proxies for companies' capital, um, uh, attributed to shareholders, and so why not? Um, and yeah, they, they've seen that price to book or price to cash flow earns about the same uh, return. Uh, they've uh, Fama and French also showed that uh, the type of risk exposure that price to book gives uh, tends to subsume price to earnings, price to sales, etc. And so that's why it became uh, a, a de facto um, definition of value in, in the academic world. But it can have uh, different uh, consequences for the investors and uh, in pra- in practical investing. So, uh, for example, uh, book value uh, as, as a definition of value mm, is very well capturing uh, the company's capital um, kind of in the 19th century uh, definition of company's capital where a brick and mortar company was the main way of generating cash flows. In today's world, uh, we uh, we rely much less on brick and mortar uh, and we rely much more uh, on intangibles. Uh, so, for example, R&D investments or advertising investments or, or investments in, in, into sales channel. 
uh, these types of investments in intangibles uh, become uh, a significant driver of, of companies' ability to generate future cash flows. Interestingly, book value is uh, not a great way of capturing it. If anything, book value, what book value captures kind of by definition is uh, the initial contributed capital by shareholders uh, plus retained earnings. Uh, and uh, that uh, book value, accounting measure of book value is quite asymmetric into how company chooses to invest. So if a company chooses to invest, takes cash and builds a factory or takes cash and buys um, a fleet of vehicles to deliver something, that kind of uh, capital still stays on the company book value. Uh, it just changes from uh, a financial asset to a fixed asset, but it's still a uh, book value is unchanged. If, on the other hand, that same company uh, were to invest into R&D or were to run into a, an advertising campaign, uh, more often than not, uh, that cost is considered, uh, that expense is considered a cost and is attributed to the currently produced asset. So it would be viewed as kind of added to the uh, either SG&A, sales and general and administrative expenses, uh, or cost of goods sold, uh, and uh, and by this uh, would detract from the company's uh, book value. And so today, uh, one problem with price to book then is that it's uh, it's becoming prone to misclassifying many companies uh, as uh, expensive uh, when the truth is that book value just doesn't capture exactly the uh, investments into intangibles. Uh, and so what we found, for example, uh, we've uh, published an article earlier this year uh, where we've, one of the uh, elements that we showed there uh, was that the accounting uh, more, uh, so adding intangibles to the book value significantly improves uh, the, uh, the value definition. So uh, that's uh, that that is one way in which uh, the um, correct accounting for the company's uh, capital and uh, where capital is is a proxy for company's ability to generate cash flows gives you uh, a better valuation metric. In your latest article, you you wrote with uh, Rob Arnold uh, titled "Did I Miss the Value Turn." You say that, and I will just quote it here, uh, value stocks stand out as the only asset class likely to generate a 5 to 10% real return over the coming decade. Shall we look now at value stocks as a bargain, although they are so scary to many people after such a long period of underperformance? We think, we think that they are. Um, basically, Mm, after the global financial crisis, uh, we had a uh, more than decade-long uh, uh, um, financial stimulus running. Uh, we had uh, very, very aggressive Q, uh, QE and low interest rate period, uh, where uh, even before the COVID crisis, uh, we had a very long period of uh, depressed um, interest rates, and depressed valuations for the mainstream um, equities, for example. Uh, now came COVID in, in 2020, 
And uh, the uh, government response to COVID uh, was unprecedented, even by the global financial crisis measures. The uh, now it's true. I mean, it, it was well justified on many fronts uh, because COVID uh, lockdowns, COVID-initiated lockdowns, was uh, were a, a crisis that we haven't experienced since the Second World War. So it is a true calamity, and if there, if any time government should be acting, that was the right time. So uh, now, don't, don't take my words as trying to say that uh, governments did something wrong. But um, given those actions, though, uh, what we have is that majority of the liquid uh, traded, uh, liquidly traded assets, they uh, the yields uh, and the valuation levels are such. Uh, that they're not likely to earn uh, the historical rates of return. So for bonds, for example, let's take bonds. Uh, bonds, we, we know if we hold it to expiration, uh, we know how much money they will give us. That's, uh, and I'm talking about the government-issued bonds from, uh, from, let's say, most developed countries. So there is very little uncertainty about that. I mean, th there is a tiny bit, nothing is risk plus... Uh, but uh, there is very little uncertainty, though. Uh, and uh, many of these um, bonds today are traded at negative uh, nominal yields. So negative nominal yields. And, and we're talking not just small percent, uh, small amounts. We're talking about tens of trillions of, uh, about 10, or slightly more than 10 of trillions of dollars, depending on when you're looking at it, sometimes 11, sometimes 14, uh, but on that order of magnitude, uh, assets globally are, are priced to deliver negative nominal yields, negative nominal return. So essentially, investors are paying for someone to hold that money. And uh, so th they're just guaranteed to lose money. Uh, and then that's just on paper. That's nominal money. Uh, and once we add to that uh, the, uh, the rest of the fixed income, uh, which may have a nominal yield a little bit above uh, 2% inflation, a little bit above zero nominal, uh, it will still often be below the average expected 2% inflation. By the way, now are we guaranteed that it will be 2% inflation? I'm not sure. Uh, given uh, the uh, amount of stimulus, we may experience uh, higher than 2% inflation. And so basically... Uh, Take it uh, as a collection of assets. When we look at fixed income, uh, most of the fixed income assets are priced to generate you negative uh, real return, negative return just for inflation. Uh, when we're looking at equities, now uh, equities uh, are uh, viewed by many uh, as, well, that's something that keeps on growing. That's not true. If you are looking at uh, valuation measures like uh, earnings yield uh, adjusted for business cycles, uh, that kind of uh, tells you uh, what you should be expecting in terms of return. And uh, today, uh, CAPE ratios are very high. The, the uh, CAPE is cyclically adjusted PE ratios, uh, also known as Schiller PE ratios. Uh, they're, they're very high. And so uh, they're very high because equities have been popular and, and as investors were piling their money into uh, into U.S. equities, uh, they, uh, the valuations were going up. 
But uh, does that mean that going forward, they're going to continue going up? Not at all. If you're buying the same assets at higher prices, that means that return going forward is going to be lower. Um, and so by looking at, uh, so we have Research Affiliates has a website titled uh, Asset Allocation Interactive, uh, which is a subsection of Research Affiliates website, uh, where we use a simple building blocks model to compute the expected return for uh, asset class, for various asset classes. And so when we're doing that exercise and looking at, the, uh, at yield, starting yields and starting uh, projected global growth, etc., uh, the uh, expected returns that we're getting for uh, the U.S. equity it tends to be about zero uh, real. And so then what else is left? Well, very little uh, mainstream uh, liquid assets. And so uh, when we're looking by comparison, uh, the assets that uh, are left and that are priced more attractively uh, are value companies uh, and uh, value companies within the United States and outside of the United States. So many countries like Europe, Europe is actually quite attractively priced and many value companies in Europe are attractively priced. Now, is that a riskless investment? No, not at all. You'd be buying Royal Dutch Shells and Exxon Mobiles of the world, Citibanks and a number of other companies. Uh, and uh, these are uh, companies that may have their cyclical issues. So if COVID, uh, if we have new variants of COVID translating into uh, continuation of the lockdowns, these companies will have, will be potentially dropping their valuations. But one question that you should be asking uh, with this, some of these scary companies is how likely is the current environment to persist two years down the road or three years down the road? And uh, my uh, assessment is COVID will be remembered, uh, but it, it won't be the thing that will be driving our day-to-day -day, uh, decisions two to three years down the road. Um, I don't think, I don't expect that uh, we will be in the lockdowns. Like London, for all extensive purposes, London uh, right now uh, feels like it's close to back to normality. It's not fully back to normality, but it feels like it is. And largely because UK ran a pretty big and successful vaccination campaign. And today, despite the third wave, uh, which is in terms of number of cases, is very comparable to the previous waves. But because of the high vaccination rates, the uh, hospital occupancy and number of deaths are much lower. And once we've uh, avoided that, um, there is very little reasons for the economy to go into lockdowns because uh, lockdowns are very expensive. And so what does that mean? That means that uh, very likely uh, other countries will be following uh, similar trajectories. Um, and that will be actually good for many uh, of the uh, cyclically depressed companies like uh, energy or financials. Regarding value, I have uh, one more question because we could see uh, through COVID that, uh, let's say, so-called virtual economy was largely unheard and even they, they grew, like we have Amazon, for example. Uh, so could we take a conclusion uh, from that, that basically investing in virtual economy is safer 
rather than you know uh, to the businesses which are you know not virtual as Amazon, but they have to physically provide services. So they are hugely impacted when we have when we are closing hotels, restaurants, and so on. So can we say that in the twenty first century, these uh, virtual economies are safer from the investment point of view, or it's uh, it's oversimplification? They prove to be safer to COVID-specific type of risks, for example. Um, and um, and uh, so from that point of view, th they are safer. Um, now, uh, how likely uh, will we have more pandemics going forward? Probably we will. Um, the number of people in the world uh, is large and uh and viruses uh, and other pathogens are uh, trying to take advantage of this big biomass of us. But uh, the relevant question is how frequently are we likely to experience a pandemic similar to COVID, uh, which is highly transmissible and uh, very virulent and likely to uh, kill a lot of us? Probably not that, that often. Uh, so, if history is the guide, uh, probably the uh, the current pandemic is um, is slightly less is not as severe as Spanish flu of hundred years ago, and probably uh, so there was a Hong Kong uh, pandemic, uh, Hong Kong flu, in about sixties or seventies. Were uh, pro, uh, which was not as uh, bad as uh, as COVID, uh, and so that's that gives us probably a high kind of uh, the probability, the frequency of how frequently should we expect something like that to to reoccur. Um, and so, coming back to the question of virtual economy, uh, virtual economy is uh, has benefited from uh, COVID lockdown. Uh, and a lot of what we've seen is probably also acceleration uh, of the you know, prior trends. Um, so uh, many of the retailers that went bust last year, they were struggling already. Uh, would they have continued without COVID? Yeah, they would have. Many of them uh, would have stayed afloat and they would have uh, survived, but mm, COVID just put a nail into their coffins and that's fine. Um, and uh, when we were all in the lockdowns, uh, we started using Amazon more. Uh, now, interestingly, uh, I think the mar market is pricing uh, a lot of the higher earnings and high, uh, high revenues for these companies as permanent uh, and perhaps as continuing growing at the same pace. Uh, and that's the danger. So uh, I, I think uh, that some of the pickup in earnings for companies like Amazon has been uh, opportunistic and transitory and can, uh, if anything, drop uh, going forward. Now, but uh, will all of it uh, drop to the pre-COVID levels? I, I don't think so. I, I think that Amazon has benefited uh, from the acceleration of, of the trends, uh, but uh, but that trend uh, is, uh, but Amazon today is uh, the uh, is becoming a behemoth, um, and many of the companies uh, on the top uh, of the market are becoming a behemoth, uh, their own behemoths. Uh, and uh, what that means, and one what history shows us, uh, is that these uh, top dogs uh, of the market 
they don't tend to stay uh, at that top dog position uh, long. They tend to have high market valuations where uh, investors just overprice them, uh, expecting the continuation of the old trend going forward. But trees just don't grow to the sky, and that that can be dangerous. So part of it, uh, part of their uh, demise, uh, historically, I'm talking about just historical uh, precedents, uh, has been just reversal of valuations. Um, and part of it is when these companies are at the very top position, they become very uh, clean, uh, clear and um, visible targets for uh, competition and regulators to extract rents from them. And that's what we've started seeing. Um, European regulators are trying to extract revenues from Google and, uh, and many other, uh, other of these tech giants. Uh, the issues around political engagement and censorship, uh, etc., uh, are entering into the uh, discourse of uh, regulation for companies like Facebook or Google, uh, and uh, and then um, so these are the exact difficulties that can bring them down and that can uh, create uh, so if european union uh, were to uh, worsen its relations with the united states for example in the global competition see why are we paying uh, all of our money to, to all of these advertisers they're essentially extracting uh, monopolistic rents uh, we should maybe uh, create and breed our own uh, competitors for these sectors uh, and uh, tax the hell out of uh, the American companies. Is it possible? I think it's possible. So now for a change, I will ask you about the momentum investing, uh, because you mentioned uh, already during our discussion that one problem with momentum is that it's a high turnover strategy, which, uh, which is just uh, creating a lot of transaction costs, which may eat a lot of the uh, potential profit. So how about using momentum with uh, stock indices, for example, uh, rather than with individual stocks? And I had here on my show already uh, Gary Antonassi, who introduced, as he calls this, dual momentum, where in fact he's just uh, using um, momentum with indices. And um, there are some advantages uh, to, with that approach because it's, it has a greater scalability and um, scalability and also lower transaction costs, uh, which is a problem with the individual stocks. And also there is a research by uh, Getschi and Samonov from 2017, Two Centuries of Multi-Asset Momentum. And they say there, uh, among other things, that momentum with stock indices outperforms momentum with individual stocks, even before trading costs. How do you see that? Because it's not very widely used or very popular approach. I think that, that that works. That's the short answer. And we've uh, ourselves have written our article, uh, our, several articles actually looking at mm, momentum between factors. Uh, and so uh, where uh, the bottom line is that once you have a factor uh, that has been outperforming, it, it tends to outperform uh, in the in the short term, so uh, one to twelve months going forward, um, and that uh, our performance is actually subsuming uh, much uh, of the uh, actually between stock uh, momentum. So it's the key driver of, of the uh, momentum effect to begin with. So. Uh, 
we think that it works um, and uh, we could talk about why it works. Um, so the uh, our hypothesis when we're looking at factor momentum for why it, uh, it would work uh, is uh, likely it's uh, coming back to two drivers. One driver is uh, that uh, many uh, of the risk-related characteristics uh, may have short, what scientists call short-term autocorrelation. So basically, in terms of news and in terms of risk preferences. So when uh, there is a bad shock to the economy, it's more likely to be followed by another bad shock. So for example, when there was global financial crisis, uh, there, were, uh, there was the initial shock, of some comp uh, some banks potentially being going close to bankruptcy uh, and then there was likely a contagion uh, where bastards went bust then lehman went uh, etc so basically that uh, sequencing of, of uh, bad events can happen over time and that would capture part of what uh, captures momentum captures and and, and uh, similarly on the uh, positive side uh, when we had uh, vaccines good news uh, coming up uh, late last year, uh, that's worse, that was the period when uh, market, uh, many value companies started rebounding, but that just didn't stop. They didn't just rebound all the way up. Uh, early this year, we started the actual vaccine implementation. Uh, markets started seeing vaccines are effective uh, and governments can't be... Um, effective in delivering and doing this massive uh, vaccination effort. Uh, and once they see it, uh, these prices were going up month after month after month. Uh, and so that's what uh, part of the momentum, uh, this index of momentum effect of momentum effect captures. Um, and the, the other potential uh, driver is flow. So uh, once investors um, start perceiving uh, that certain uh, asset class is becoming attractive, uh, they start investing into it. And, and that further accelerates uh, the uh, the growth because these uh, flows tend to be lagging uh, the actual historical performance. Um, and, uh, and so they tend to uh, invest after the fact of good performance. And so these flows... Uh, can uh, boost some uh, types of stocks or some uh, strategies up. And, and vice versa, by the way. On the downside, uh, it, it can follow uh, the negative side. So uh, investors uh, tend to get scared after bad shocks, uh, and uh, they tend to, uh, after a while, when they see the prices falling down, they tend to lose patience and they get out. And those negative flows tend to drive the prices down and in the short term, uh, that all translates into the momentum effect. Okay, thank you. I mean, I will not keep you here for ages because we are already talking like uh, well over an hour. But I have some final questions here. In one of your articles titled Smart Beta and the Pendulum of Mispricing, you focus there on long-term mean reversion. For example, value is seen as a, a long-term mean reversion where after three to five years, the prices are mean reverting to the to the average prices. So my question is, at least maybe it's my misunderstanding. I see that uh, on the academia, the, the mean reversion in the long term is, uh, let's say, accepted. But uh, how do you see the short term mean reversion, which is 
even below uh, the um, um, uh, below the the momentum effect. So let's say uh, with the short term, like one month. So we have a short, uh, we have a long term trend, and then we have some short term corrections, because statistically uh, we can see that there is such effect also in the short term. But it's not seen. I mean, short term mean reversion as a factor. So is there a purpose for that or why it's not maybe accepted or, or how do you see that? The short-term um, uh, moment, uh, short-term mean reversion, uh, so let me let me explain a little bit about what the literature is saying and what, what the empirics are showing. Um, so uh, when looking at company prices uh, on the horizon less than a month, um, the, uh, there, there tends to be uh, mean reversion. So basically, if uh, the price went up last month, uh, next month they're likely to uh, price is likely to go down. Uh, then uh, on the horizon of uh, one month to twelve months, uh, there is momentum effect. Basically, if the price went up in the last six to twelve months, it's more likely than not to continue going up in the next twelve months or so. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, there is uh, mean reversion, long-term mean reversions, uh, which is probably strongest at about three years. Uh, and so uh, if we have stocks going up uh, over the last three years, Amazon, for example, <laughs> they tend to go down uh, going forward and vice versa. If a stock, if energy sector has been in decline, uh, then in the next two, three years, they tend to recover. And that's uh, what drives the uh, most of the value effect. So your question was about that very first uh, months, what happens there? So the, there is that very strong uh, short-term uh, mean reversion documented in the literature. Now, part of what is driving that, uh, that return is an artifact in the data uh, that can be captured by investors that uh, is known as bid-ask-bounds. Uh, Richard Rohl uh, wrote a, a, an article about it, who is a very famous uh, finance professor. Uh, and uh, basically, his explanation it, it makes a lot of sense that you have uh, stocks quoted and uh, bid and ask, right? And, and so uh, when you are recording the prices, uh, you're not recording the average prices, you're recording the actual transactions. And so those transactions can be uh, either uh, on bid and ask or ask. Uh, and so uh, if it was kind of a little bit above the average, the next one is going to be, some, again, either one of those, right? Uh, and so on average, uh, that's uh, in between. So it looks like uh, the price is mean reverting. And so uh, that's part of the uh, of the uh, of this uh, short term mean reversal due to bid ask bounds uh, that is not capturable. Uh, that's just an artifact of the data that that academics use for uh, testing the strategies. And so once we correct for that, the efficacy there is still some um, short term mean reversion still survives, uh, but tends to be much weaker. And uh, it's usually not harvested because to harvest it, you need even higher turnover than even for momentum strategies. As I mentioned, a momentum uh, as a pure investment strategy uh, is not very feasible once you look at a large scale of assets. For that short term, uh, that, be that issue is even worse. 
um, because now you're not just trading based on the last 12 months uh, of price movement, but just like on every month. So every month your portfolio looks uh, different. And so uh, once you factor in the transaction costs, uh, all of the benefits disappear. Uh, now, the way it, it's still used is when defining momentum, for example, uh, most investors keep the last months uh, not to trade against the against the short-term mineral version. I have one question uh, from my listener who's uh, asking how to choose the right ETF. Let's say that uh, he'd like to have an exposure to value. So are there any guidelines to make that to make it optimal choice? Uh, because, you know, the problem is from a point of view of an average investor that we have thousands of ETFs. And then even if, they, if we filter them out, uh, let's say only to value, still there's a huge number of them. So how to approach it and how to select the best one? When looking at the ETFs, um, so I, I started in the beginning, look at the costs, uh, look, uh, look at the uh, strategy definition, and so look under the hood. Once you've done all that and you, 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 you've narrowed down your selection to only the cheapest management, uh, cheapest funds by management fees, look at the discount uh, that this fund is uh, trading at. So look at the average price to book, price to sales, price to cash flow characteristics uh, for the uh, for the portfolio in the in the ETF. Um, and here uh, it may be uh, also uh, good uh, to select the uh, geographies uh, which are more attractively priced. So uh, for example, looking at value, even though value uh, in the United States, uh, is reasonably is very attractively priced on the relative basis. Uh, it can still be cheap. Uh, ch you can still have cheap opportunities uh, in by looking at value in Europe or value in the emerging markets. Now they might be risky, but uh, if you're comfortable with that type of risk, uh, then going for uh, for the cheaper and uh, more discounted assets, you're more likely to earn a high premium. Okay, thank you. And I have one more question from a listener who's uh, saying that we can slice and dice the market by many dimensions like country, industry, factor. And he's asking uh, what is the leading uh, dimension? So he's asking that question from the perspective of someone who wants to have, a, let's say, passive portfolio. So he will not actively uh, change the, uh, uh, um, uh, the, the, the asset allocation, but he would like to have some, let's say... Um, hints how he should approach should he look on the geography or maybe he should rather focus on industry or maybe factors so put more value than momentum are there any rule of thumbs here so uh asset relations uh, make sense as a uh, as a selection criteria and so from that perspective uh, I can uh, research affiliates has a fantastic tool in my opinion uh, the one that I've mentioned before, uh, Asset Allocation Interactive, uh, which is looking at different uh, asset classes in multiple geographies uh, and showing uh, what would be the expected return uh, given the uh, current yields that these securities are paying and, uh, and the growth rates likely to experience by these countries. So that's one tool that you can look uh, to 
uh, to find uh, opportunities. Um, also, uh, Research Affiliates has uh, a tool titled a Smart Beta Interactive. So if you were, to, again, Google Smart Beta Interactive, uh, Research Affiliates has a tool uh, looking at uh, factors and factor relative valuations. I mentioned at some point that factors can be cheaper or expensive uh, relative to the history, uh, and that uh, relative valuations tend to be highly correlated uh, with the subsequent attractiveness, subsequent return of that factor. Um, and so uh, on that website, uh, we also pl uh, show the uh, projected returns for different geographies uh, for various factors. So uh, look at those two tools uh, they they do not give you the exact uh, tickers to invest in. That's not the purpose. They give you a general um, direction, uh, U.S. equity versus emerging market equity, U.S. equity versus uh, large cap equity versus value equity, etc. And so once you've selected, uh, then you can uh, use that uh, general guidance to look for the exact vehicles uh, to invest in. Okay, thank you for that. I will put, by the way, all the links uh, to the show notes, so whoever is interested will find them there. And really, believe me, the last question I have uh, for you today, do you have maybe some general recommendations uh, for those who are uh, interested in factory investing or any rule of thumbs they should follow uh, when they are uh, willing to put some factory investing in their portfolios? Do your homework. Uh, do your homework and uh, understand uh, what uh, what drives uh, your portfolio return. Uh, understand your investment objectives uh, and uh, understand the horizon for which you're investing uh, and how much money you are expecting to contribute and have discipline around it. Once you've done uh, that and once you've uh, selected uh, your portfolio, it's good to then follow a, a disciplined rebalancing approach where you would, if an asset were to go up in prices, more likely than not, uh, that asset would, would have fallen down over time in terms of its attractiveness. So trim down the exposure to that asset and buy what has fallen down and has become recently more attractive. And uh, by doing this uh, slow rebalance, don't, don't overdo it because in the short term, there is momentum. So let it ride for, for a year, but then after a year, do a little bit of trimming and realize some profits and put those profits into some recently cheaper strategies. And that dis rebalancing discipline plus contri uh, contributing discipline uh, and uh, seeing that uh, horizon that you have in mind and uh, being disciplined in terms of your savings uh, in the long term, that would, will make a difference. Don't expect magic. Uh, there is no such thing as magic in investing. Uh, there are no magic formulas that will uh, earn you a high return. Uh, now, uh, some assets will earn you a high return, but they tend to be often more risky and uh, scary for uh, others, exactly because they are scary and risky. That's why they sometimes pay high return. And so be prepared for bumpy ride. Uh, and uh, as long as you are prepared and disciplined in the wrong, long run, that tends to, to pay. To a degree, that's, uh, that's kind of all I'm saying is not a rocket science. It's almost like it's good to brush your teeth and good to do your homework. Uh, in the long run, that's what pays. 
Yeah. So would you agree that uh, no pain, no gain, that the investors should be prepared for some pain in order to capture the bigger profits? Absolutely. Yeah. Vitaly, thank you very much for your for your time today. It's highly appreciated. I mean, you, you provided us a huge amount of great knowledge about value, value investing, momentum investing, factor investing in general and other things. So I'm very, very grateful for that. It was really a pleasure and have a good day. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's, it was a pleasure to, uh, to talk about it. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.